Well, I'd like to uh, invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Acts chapter 20. And we'll be looking at verses 17 through 27 this morning. And we're still uh, on Paul's third missionary journey. He's on his way back now, heading towards Jerusalem, where he will deliver this great monetary gift that he's collected from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. And uh, so he's very anxious to get back to Jerusalem. But he's not there yet. So in Acts chapter 20, I'd like to read, starting in verse 17, where Paul now comes to the seaport called Miletus. And he's going to meet with the Ephesian elders. He's going to call them down. And uh, most, all of it, most of this for the rest of the chapter is his speech to the Ephesian elders. So it's a very uh, marvelous uh, piece of uh, sharing and instruction and exhortation that he gives to them. So that's what we'll be focusing on. We're only going to look at the first half of it. Uh, You can break his speech down into basically three parts. The first part is his uh, reviewing of his personal ministry while he was at Ephesus, remember he was there for three years earlier, a few months earlier. He was there for three years. And that's a portion we're going to look at this morning. Then the second part of this uh, discourse is his charge to the elders of the church at Ephesus. So if you want to see me and the other elders sweat without doing any physical activity, then you'll need to come next week and hear what he says to the elders. It's uh, it's always convicting. And then uh, right after that is his farewell commendation. So uh, we'll spend two weeks working through this uh, wonderful uh, discourse that is given to us by the Spirit of God. So I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, down through verse 27. And as the psalmist uh, reminds us of his great love for the, for the law of God and his desire to meditate on it day and night, may we recognize that we're reading the inspired word of Almighty God. And what a gift and what a blessing. So please listen reverently. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, Paul is uh, now at uh, Miletus, which is right here. Remember, he started from Troas. He walked the distance down to Asos. And that's where he had his Gethsemane experience, which I think is probably why he insisted on walking that journey alone and sending everybody else on the ship around to Asos. Once they arrived there, he got on the ship with the other seven brothers that were traveling with him. And they made their way down the coast. They bypassed Ephesus and they came to Miletus. The reason is he's anxious to get to Jerusalem. If he stops at Ephesus, he can't just stay there for a few days or a few weeks. He, he just he feels like he would uh, stay too long. So he bypasses Ephesus. He sails down to Miletus and then he calls for the Ephesian elders, the elders of the church at Ephesus to walk down to Miletus and to meet with him. Now it's about a 30 mile trip roughly from Ephesus to Miletus as a crow flies. So you kind of have to take Roots around, so it probably took two days for the messengers to go up to Ephesus, get the elders, and two more days for them to come down to Miletus. What's interesting is that this is the only speech of Paul recorded in the book of Acts where he's actually addressing believers. All the other discourses, all the other sermons in the book of Acts that come from the Apostle Paul are either evangelistic, preaching the Gospel to Jews or to Gentiles, or he's making a defense of his ministry before unbelievers, whether it would be uh, the governors or whether it would be the king later on in the book of Acts. This is really the only speech where he's, where he's actually addressing believers. So he's called for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come down and join with him. And as I said earlier, you can break down this discourse into three parts. We're going to look at the first part, which primarily focuses on him calling to their memory what his ministry was during the three years that he was with them at Ephesus. Now, the reason why I think this is so important is because we all need godly examples in the Christian life. And I think that's part of the value of reading biographies is you get to read the the lives of godly men to inspire us and to motivate us in our own growth in grace and in godliness. And Paul was an apostle with amazing gifts. And he's talking to the elders of the church, reminding them of his ministry in their midst. And I think what we see in the apostle Paul is a marvelous example of a godly man that we can imitate to a degree. Of course, you can't imitate all of what the Apostle Paul was about or his ministry because he had a unique calling and he had unique giftings of the Lord. But I've entitled this passage, The Marks of a Godly Man. 
Because I think we all need to be challenged. We all need to be motivated and inspired to live for Jesus Christ. And if there's ever a man who did that, it was the Apostle Paul. And so what I'd like for us to do in our study this morning as we work through this passage is I want us to look at Paul's life and his ministry as it's revealed to us. I want us to look at his character I want us to look at his commitments, his content of his teaching ministry, and also his consecration to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And from this, by God's grace, uh, may the Spirit of God uh, challenge us and energize us to be more like the Apostle Paul in the areas in which it is, which uh, we are enabled by the Spirit of God. So a lot of what we're going to see will be transferable. Some will not. But Paul could say to all of the believers at the church of Corinth, be imitators of me just as I also am of Jesus Christ. So he intends his life to be one for us to imitate. So that's the approach we're going to look at it uh, together this morning. The marks of a godly man, which by the grace of God, hopefully we will share more and more as we walk with the Lord Jesus. Well, let's begin by looking at his character. We see this primarily in verses 17 through 19 and then down in verse 33 through 35, which I'll just briefly comment on. But in verse 17, at Miletus, he sent for the, sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know. So he's appealing to their knowledge. Because he was with them for three years. And these elders probably came to faith through his ministry, were discipled under his ministry, spent countless hours with the Apostle Paul in doing ministry together, being trained by this godly man. So he can say, you yourselves know. I'm not just making this up. You know what I'm telling you is true. And he emphasizes this because there is always a... a, combat, if you will, of a, of a vicious smear campaign that Satan would bring up and, and, and aim and fire at the Apostle Paul. And there are times when he had to defend his apostolic ministry. He had to do that in Corinth. He's doing it at Ephesus because there were the Jews and Gentiles that were attacking the Apostle Paul. So he's appealing to their knowledge. He's appealing to their personal experience with him. What they have seen, what they have heard, what they have, what they know about his ministry when he was among them. And there are several things we see about his character. And the first thing that jumps off the page to me is that he have appeals to them that, again in verse 18, that you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with humility. That He was a servant. He was a humble servant of the Lord. He was serving the Lord with all humility. And I think this uh, concept of the Apostle Paul 
is an important one. I'm actually, I'll refer to this in a moment. But uh, the notion that he was a servant, I think, gives us an insight as to how he viewed himself and his relationship with Jesus Christ. The word servant here, of course, is a word oftentimes translated slave. So he served as a slave. Paul viewed himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. All believers, we have been bought by the blood of Christ. We don't belong to ourselves. You don't belong to yourself. You have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ. You belong to Him. You don't belong to yourself anymore. And Paul viewed himself in that light as a servant and a slave of Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says in 1 Corinthians 7, He who is called in the Lord while free is Christ's slave. And Peter exhorts the same thing to the believers he writes to. Peter says, be a bond slave of God. So that one of the great marks of Christ's likeness is being a servant, and Paul was a servant. You can see this uh, illustrated in our Lord's life, of course, when He washed the disciples' feet. We're all familiar with that in John 13. And here is the sinless Son of God who laid aside His outer garments, took a towel with a basin of water, and washed the the stinky feet of His foolish, ignorant, sinful creatures, His disciples. And He did that out of great love. And this is an amazing thing because when Jesus washed His disciples' feet, you're talking here about the sinless, holy Son of God, the Creator of the heavens and the earth, the Judge of all men who holds our very life breath in His hands, who humbled Himself to serve His disciples. And then He said to them after He did that, if I then the Lord and the Teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So that's Christ. He's the greatest servant there ever was. And the Apostle Paul is an imitator of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a slave of Christ. He is imitating the servant's heart of his Master and of his Lord. Again, this is one of the distinguishing marks of Christ's kingdom. We see it here in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercised authority over them. It's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. You want to be great in my kingdom, Paul said? Be a servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. For just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So the Apostle is telling the Ephesian elders, you know that when I was among you, I served you. I served the Lord. And by serving the Lord, I was serving you. I came as a servant. I came as a slave. 
And that's one of the great marks of a godly man or a godly woman is to be a servant. If you're not serving, you're not like Jesus Christ. If you're all out about being number one or being the greatest, you're not like Jesus Christ. Greatness is His kingdom is lowering yourself to being a servant, to being a slave. But he adds to that concept of being a servant that he was serving the Lord with all humility, verse 19. With all humility. We see in this uh, particular passage how important humility is. Now normally when someone talks about humility, you don't get the impression that they're very humble. But again, with the Apostle Paul in this particular situation, he had to uh, basically defend this because so many people were attacking his reputation. So he had to remind the elders from the church of Ephesus what he was about when he was there. And he's not bragging, he's just reminding them. No doubt because his reputation was always under attack. But if you look at this particular I've got a little bit of a blip. Let me see if I can. Electronics. I just love them. See if that will come up. There we go. When Paul was talking about himself and emphasizing his own humility, it's important because pride is such a stink weed in the life of our our own hearts. Pride says it's all about me, but humility says no, it's all about Christ. Pride says it's always about me getting what I want. Humility says no, it's about me serving other people. Paul was a very humble man. Remember, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners as the least of all the saints, the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I didn't make myself what I am. It's purely by the grace of God. That's what I am. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. I'm not anything in my ministry, but it's God who causes the growth. That was his attitude. That would be deep humility. What do you have that you have not received? He told the Corinthians. It all comes from God. We're nothing. And of course, again, Paul is imitating the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians 2, we have that amazing passage describing the humility of Christ where Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be coveted or grasped. But he said, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a what? A bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the pride in your heart. He's opposed to the pride in my heart. 
but He gives grace to the humble. And one of the great marks of the Apostle Paul is that he was a humble servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think in that sense, that is certainly transferable to you and me. Again, if we don't have a humble heart, we're not very much like the Lord Jesus Christ. I think if you if you said, what, what does it mean to be like Christ? In my mind, I think of basically three main character traits that would make us more like Jesus Christ. One is holiness of life. Obviously, Christ is a sinless, holy Son of God. To be more like Him is to grow in holiness. Secondly, is to have a forgiving spirit. If you're one who holds grudges and you become bitter against other people, you're not like Christ. Christ came to forgive. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's all about having a forgiving heart. That makes you like Christ. And then thirdly, just the humble servant's heart that Christ had. And the more we become like Christ, the more we will take on those characteristics. Of course, to be a humble servant means you have to sacrifice self. And that's not always easy to do, is it? Remember, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. And this is the mark of the Apostle Paul. I think he was a man who by the grace of God lived up to that often in his life. He denied himself. He took up his cross daily and he followed Christ. But Jesus doesn't just limit it to people like Paul. It's for you and for me. These are challenging words, challenging characteristics. But to be like Christ is to be a humble servant. That's what the Apostle Paul was. There's a second character trait that we see uh, presented in this passage, and that is found in verse 19. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. So we find a reference to tears. Uh, He actually refers to his own tears twice in this passage. Later on in verse 31, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And then in Philippians 3.18, he says, There are many who walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul was a man who at times shed tears. Now what does that mean? Well, James Montgomery Boyce said that by tears, Paul doesn't mean that he was given to frequent outbursts of emotion. But he means that he was what we would call today a man of great empathy. By the tears, meaning what the Apostle Paul would later say, we need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul was a man who had a great sensitive heart to the needs and hurts and struggles of other people. So he would minister with tears. He would be around a suffering brother or sister doing ministry and and their, their pain and their agony and their suffering would move him. He was a man of deep empathy with other people. And I think this is one of those transferable marks that we all need to grow in is an empathy. 
Because too often times, it's so easy just to be stone cold, hard hearted towards the sufferings of other people around us. But that was not the Apostle Paul. He was a man who had a big sensitive heart to the needs of others, the hurts of others, the struggles of others, so that there are times when he's weeping. Sometimes when he's, when tears are swelling up in his eyes. Because he cared for people. He loved people. And may God give us more of that kind of a heart. The third character trait is this, that uh, he was a man who had a lot of trials. That comes with a godly life. Trials. Want to be more godly? Expect trials. Paul had his trials. He refers to him in verse 19. Also, when he says that uh, with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, the Jews didn't like the Gospel. They rejected their own Messiah. So they were always out to foil and disrupt and bring mayhem into the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Accusing him of being a false prophet. Attacking him. Running him down to the Gentiles. Sometimes getting the Gentiles to merge with him, with them, to discredit and run Paul out of town. So all of this are the trials that he experienced. That's why I remember at Ephesus, he was run out of the synagogue and spent uh, 18 months at the school of Tyrannus, teaching in that uh, location because he couldn't, he wasn't welcome back in the synagogue. So he's reminding them of all the trials that he endured while he was there among them. In one place, as he's recounting his whole list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, he mentions eight times in one verse of all the different kinds of dangers he had in his ministry. You ought to read it. All kinds of dangers. He had his trials. And a godly character takes courage and backbone and resolve to remain faithful to Christ and to persevere through those trials. And that's what Paul did. He had many trials. You have your trials. We all have our trials. But those trials did not stop him or deter him or derail him in his ministry and his service of Jesus Christ. And again, he was there for three years. But by the grace of God, he persevered. And I think in that we also find a transferable character trait. He was a man who suffered much, but it never caused him to slack off in his service and ministry for the cause of Christ. He was an amazing man. And the fourth uh, character trait is just his labors. And because of his unique calling, Paul didn't want to be supported so he worked with his own hands down in verse 33 through 35. He worked with his own hands to provide for himself financially and also for the men who were with him. He wasn't opposed to being supported financially whenever other churches would send in money. But when he's at a location, he didn't want in any way back in that day and age for, it, for the, his opponents to use that to, to undermine his ministry. So he was a hard worker. And he gives that in verses 33 through 35. Of course, in other places, he, he certainly encourages the churches to support their local leaders. Corinthians, he certainly emphasizes that in other places. But for himself, he had a different standard. 
So those are some of the character traits of the Apostle Paul. Next, I want us to look at his commitments. Basically, in this passage, we have three basic commitments of a godly man. And these are commitments that you and I can embrace to a degree, certainly as well. To summarize them, his commitments were to do everything profitable, to speak everything profitable, everywhere proclaiming, and everyone pursuing. Those are his three commitments that are reflected uh, that we see when he spent his time at Ephesus. Let's look at these. Look at verse 20. He says, I, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. So one of his commitments was to declare everything profitable to the Ephesian churches. That's what he was committed to. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable. The word profitable just means to their advantage, for their help, to confer a blessing, to be useful to them in their daily lives, to make them better off. That's to be profitable. Paul says, I did not shrink. I didn't hold myself back. I wasn't in any way prevented from declaring to you everything that was profitable to your walk with Christ. The truths that were not popular but profitable, He declared to them. He declared the Gospel to them. That all men are sinners and basically deserve the wrath of God because of their sin. That there is no way that you can save yourself. You can never be good enough. Isaiah says that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Just abandon the idea that you're ever going to make yourself good enough to deserve to go to heaven. God doesn't grade on a, on a scale or a balance. We are sinners. We are disqualified. We are under the condemnation of God's law. And there is only one way to be forgiven. There is only one way to be saved. And that is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son who died on the cross to pay the penalty for sinners like us. Paul says, everything profitable I declared to you. Not only the Gospel, but all the other truths found in the Word of God. I think what we see from this is that this is something good for us to consider. Is our speech always profitable? Are we declaring what is profitable for other people? What about all the backbiting? What about all those critical, judgmental comments? Is that profitable? Now there is certainly rebukes and admonishments are profitable. Done in the right way, I think, certainly. But is our speech profitable? Are we building people up or with a vicious spirit tearing them down? Paul would write later to the Ephesians when he's, when he's in prison in Rome. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Listen to this. He tells them, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification 
according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. See, that, those are profitable words. Good for edification. Good for building up according to the need of the moment. Giving grace to other people by our words. Paul says, everything profitable I declared to you. And then in addition to that, he said, everywhere proclaiming. I was teaching you, verse 20, publicly from house to house. Publicly in the school of Tyrannus, for example. Maybe he was out doing street preaching like some of the brothers in the church are doing. He was publicly proclaiming the Word of God. But also from house to house. Whether that was going to individual members' homes or whether these are the house churches, which many commentators favor that idea. But he was everywhere proclaiming the Word of God. Everywhere. So wherever you go is an opportunity for you to proclaim the Word of God. You go through the grocery store, it's an opportunity. Going into Walmart, it's an opportunity. Everywhere was, was open game for the Apostle Paul to proclaim the Word of God and the Gospel. The ministry is not limited to the church building is what he's saying. Ministry is everywhere. There's an opportunity to that there is an opportunity to proclaim the Word. So when you think about it, I mean the whole creation, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. The earth is the Lord's and all it proclaims. And so this is our sphere of proclaiming the Gospel. It's everywhere proclaiming. And that's what Paul, that was one of his commitments. And would that God would give us more opportunities to proclaim the Gospel to other people wherever we're at, wherever we go that God would give us those opportunities to be everywhere proclaiming. So everything profitable, everywhere proclaiming, and thirdly, everyone pursuing. Jews and Greeks, verse 21. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To all nationalities, in other words. Paul was all things to all men that by all means he might save some. 1 Corinthians 9. Because the new covenant, the old covenant, was restricted basically to the nation of Israel, but not the new covenant. The new covenant is an international covenant for Jews and Gentiles. Anyone can come in and partake of the blessings of the new covenant. So he proclaimed to both Jews and Greeks. In Revelation 5, when Christ died on the cross, He purchased for God with His blood men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And that was Paul's commitment. Everyone pursuing. Not just Jews in the synagogues, but Gentiles as well. And that was one of the commitments. He was called, he referred to himself as the Apostle of the Gentiles. Because that was his unique calling. And he had a desire to take the Gospel to everybody. John Stott said that this is uh, evangelism in depth. He says that the Apostle Paul shared all possible truths with all possible people in all possible ways. He taught the whole Gospel to the whole city with his whole strength. 
So that was his commitment. Everyone pursuing. And may God give Northwest Bible Church that commitment and that vision as well. Well, moving on quickly, how about the content of his teaching ministry? Well, again, this is laid out in this passage. Notice in verse 21, he taught repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. Repentance and faith. They both go together like two sides of a coin. See, true faith always has a conviction of sin before a holy God. Otherwise, you end up with an easy believism where you're just coming to Jesus so you can go to heaven. But true saving faith is far deeper than that. True saving faith has an awareness that I'm a sinner. And I need to turn from my sin to Jesus Christ in faith. So repentance is turning from sin. I want to be forgiven of that sin. I want to be set free from that sin. And you're turning to Jesus Christ who's the only one who can forgive you and empower you to live a life that pleases Him. People experience sorrow for sins on different levels. Won't get into that. But true faith involves the mind, the heart, the will in turning from our sin, turning to Jesus Christ. That was the Gospel. That's what He's preaching. And as we share the Gospel, we need to keep that in mind as well. Secondly, in verse 24, He summarizes that as testifying solemnly of the Gospel of the grace of God. So the word Gospel, of course, means good news. And it's the good news of God's grace. Because salvation is by God's grace. And what does grace mean? That which is unmerited. It's it's undeserved. We can't earn it. It's given as a gift. That is God's grace. And so the Gospel of the grace of God is that God did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. I cannot save myself. I cannot scrub away my sin. It's bone deep within me. I cannot do that. I cannot in any way earn my way to heaven. But God's grace did for me what I cannot do for myself. He sent His only begotten Son who had no sin so He could die in my place and in your place. He could die as a substitute for sinners like us. That God could take our sin and place it on Him and strike Him and punish Him and pour out His wrath and His curse upon Christ and He bore the penalty of of our sins so that we don't have to. But we only receive that free gift through repentance and faith. But it is God's grace. It is God's gift. The Gospel is not a Self-help gospel. It's not a gospel come to Jesus and don't make you healthy and wealthy. No, it's come to Jesus to be saved from your sins. That's the gospel. And it's a gift that only God can give. The good news of God's grace is of His unmerited favor which He gives the greatest gift, eternal life, to the greatest of sinners purely by that grace of repentance and believing in Jesus Christ. It's all by His grace. 
Forgiveness of all of our sins is freely given to any and all who turn to Christ, turn from their sin to Jesus Christ. It's the Gospel of the grace of God. The third thing he emphasizes is the kingdom. We looked at this a few weeks ago. The kingdom of God refers to God's reign and rule in our lives. And when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, you enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. So He's the King and He is to rule and reign over every area of my life. That's what it implies. Now, we struggle with that. We struggle with our sin. But being in His kingdom is desiring and seeking for my King to rule in every area of my life. That's what it means to be a believer. Again, sometimes we will struggle with that. Sometimes we will, we will rebel against that. But the Spirit of God will rekindle that within our hearts. So who are you pursuing today? Who are you trying to please today? See, if you're in the kingdom, you will consciously, deliberately desire to please and serve Christ. To have Him reign and rule in your life. And if you don't have that in your heart, then your faith is probably not genuine. Because it's a part of being in the kingdom. And Paul preached the kingdom. You are not your king. You have a king. You're not your master. You have a master. You're his slave. Seek to serve him, please him, honor him. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. And may God give us more grace to live that out practically in our life. And then fourthly, he also emphasized in verse 27 that he proclaimed the whole purpose of God to them. The whole purpose of God. And of course, the cross of Christ is at the apex. It's at the center of the whole purpose of God. But this is an interesting phrase. If you look at verse 27, he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In verse 26, he says, Therefore, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I've declared the whole purpose of God. I didn't hold anything back from you. I gave you the whole package of the truth of God. The whole purpose of God. This word for purpose is a word that Luke likes to use in other passages. And it has a very unique nuance to it because it really is tied to the idea of God's foreordination, God's predetermined will, His decrees, things like that. For example, in Peter said in Acts 2, verse 23, referring to Christ, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan. That's the word purpose in our verse. And foreknowledge of God you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men. So the crucifixion of Christ was the predetermined purpose or plan of God. Predetermined. From before the foundation of the world. In Acts chapter 4, verse 28, again, Peter to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The word purpose is our word. So that when Peter is thinking of this word, he's, he's thinking about the whole purpose of God. Basically from eternity past 
to eternity future. I told you all about that. I proclaimed it all to you. The whole purpose of God. The predestined, foreordained counsel and plan of God to save sinners like us. In Ephesians 1.11, Paul also refers to that. We've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to His purpose. That's our word again. Predestined according to His purpose. So it's an eternal plan. It's an eternal purpose. And Hebrews 6.17 says it's an unchangeable purpose as well. So Paul declared to them about predestination. These are things that most people shy away from today. They don't like the teachings of God's unconditional election, of predestination. Paul says, hey, I declared that to you. I gave you the whole purpose, the whole plan of God. And uh, he was very faithful in doing that. So he was very faithful, even if they struggled with understanding it. Maybe they didn't even like it at times. He still proclaimed it to them. So he was faithful. So that's a summary of the content of his ministry. And now finally we come to His consecration. If you look at verse 22 through 24 again, He says, And now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now last week, the word bonds again, as I emphasize, refers to chains and imprisonment. So he said, I don't know what's going to happen to me. When he says that, I don't know for sure what's, what, what's going to happen to me. I think it's whether he's going to live or be put to death, he doesn't know. But one thing he does know, chains and afflictions await him in Jerusalem. That he does know. Because the Spirit of God revealed that to him in every city that he had gone to. But then notice what he says in verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul is bound by the Spirit. Meaning, the Spirit of God has compelled him and is driving him to go to Jerusalem. He is bound by the Spirit of God. And I think it should refer to the Holy Spirit. King James has a lowercase s, human spirit. But I think the Spirit of God is, is most in view here. So that Paul senses a divine imperative, a divine drive from the Holy Spirit that he must obey. He will not shrink back from it. He understands that this is God's will for him to go to Jerusalem and nothing is going to stop him. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He knows he's going to suffer and be arrested. He may be executed. He doesn't know for sure. But he says, you know what? That's okay. My life is not of any account to me as dear. What's dear to me, what's important to me, is for me to finish my course for me to run my race and fulfill the ministry that Christ has given to That's the only thing that matters to me. Live or die, I don't care. What's important to me is serving Jesus Christ. 
And it's that consecration that I think challenges all to the core, does it not? Challenges me. Paul's like Christ set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And no one could talk him out of it. He was determined and resolved to go there. The Spirit of God was commanding him and driving him to go there. And he's willing to accept whatever the consequences are. What a man of incredible courage. His focus was to do the will of God. His goal was not to just to go to Jerusalem and survive at all costs. His goal was to finish the course. So that ministry was not about building a name for himself. It was not about exalting himself. He was a humble servant willing to go and die for his Master if the Lord called him to do that. His vision was totally about exalting Christ, not Himself. And someone once said to preachers, but it's, it's applicable to I think all of us, is that when we live our life, you cannot exalt yourself and exalt Christ at the same time. You have to choose. Who will we live for? Who will we exalt? Me? Or Jesus Christ? And the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, God had put this in his heart. His focus was on finishing my course, doing what God has called me to, regardless of what it costs me personally. His heart is that Christ would be exalted in His body, whether by life or by death. Philippians chapter 1. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That was His heart. And really, when you look at uh, the marks of a godly man, you look at the character of the Apostle Paul, you look at his commitments, you look at the content, the purity of the Gospel, the, the, the breadth of theological instruction that he gave to the people, you look at his heart, his consecration to the Lord, and you see he truly was a godly man. A man who can challenge us, a man who can minister grace to us and help us. I say the Spirit of God would minister the grace through the life of the Apostle Paul to help us grow in our own walk with the Lord. The basis of our consecration to Christ is the same basis for the Apostle Paul. And it's basically Christ's consecration for us. His willingness to go to the cross and to die. He gave His all for us. And His challenge to you and to me is to give our all to Him. The Lord Jesus said again, if anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. Let me ask us a question. Does that speak to us as believers today? This is a challenge that Christ gave to His disciples. If you want to call yourself a Christian and a follower of Me, deny yourself. 
Be a humble servant like Christ, like the Apostle Paul. It's not about you or me. It's about Him. Be willing to go through your trials. Paul went through his trials. He says, take up your cross daily. Be willing to suffer. Be willing to die for me. Does that describe my heart? And then follow me. Be consecrated to me. So that what Jesus Christ challenges each and every disciple is something we see lived out in bold colors in the life of the Apostle Paul, which challenges us to go and do likewise. There's a meeting at uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes many decades ago, and Bobby Richardson, who is the former New York Yankee second baseman, anybody remember Bobby Richardson? A few of you old folks do. <laughs> Kind of dates us, doesn't it? Now I remember him. I'm there with you. But um, so he was he was asked to stand up and give a prayer, and it's really a classic prayer in its brevity and just uh, what it communicates. And basically, this is what he prayed. He said, "Dear God, Your will. Nothing more. Nothing less." Nothing else. Amen. And that's a pretty good summary, I think, of the life of the Apostle Paul. The mark of a godly man. A godly woman. Would you and I be godly this morning? Can you pray this prayer and mean it? Each and every day? To wake up in the morning and say, Oh God, Your will Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And seek to consecrate our lives to live for Him who consecrated Himself to die on the cross to save us from our sins and give us an eternity in glory ahead. Well, may God help make us more like Paul. Better, may God make us more like Christ. With that, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that we can read the biography of this incredible godly man, the Apostle Paul, and be challenged. Be challenged by his character. Be challenged by his commitments. His content and purity of his understanding and proclamation of the Gospel and biblical truths and be challenged by His consecration that He was totally sold out to serve Christ. Lord, we live in a, in a very worldly age and time where the world pulls on us from so many different directions, constantly trying to mold us into its image. But Father, we pray that the life of the Apostle Paul as it imitated the Lord Jesus Christ would pull on us, would tug on us to pull us more in the direction towards that consecrated life to live for You and not for ourselves. So in our weakness, Lord, in our failure, 
Lord, may the Spirit of God revive us and energize us that the church might live up to our high and holy calling in Jesus Christ because it's all about Him. For His honor and for His glory we ask it. Amen.